G'day, mate. 40 here. Let's switch over to Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson saying a look back for a moment. The coronavirus pandemic, that would be the virus itself and our government's response to it, turns out to have been the single most destructive event to take place in the United States in our lifetime. So destructive that it's going to be many years before we know for certain what the last two and a half years have cost all of us. But even now, the outlines of it are clear. COVID crashed our economy, first and foremost. GDP fell by the biggest percentage since the Great Depression. 22 million Americans lost their jobs in the first two months of the lockdowns. Remember that? What you may not know is that at least 5 million of them never went back to work. They dropped out of the workforce apparently for good. At the same time, as fewer people were working, thanks to the profligate lunacy of our leaders, our national debt rose by nearly $10 trillion, unprecedented. And along with the debt, our debt to China also rose. And then at the level of our society, every bad thing became more common. Drug ODs, suicide, illiteracy, crime, all of them skyrocketed. So did obesity, anxiety, and alcoholism, and virtually every other marker of social decay. Marriages and birth rates, meanwhile, dropped. So did church attendance. We could go on, but you know what happened because you live here. And none of that is even counting the deaths from the coronavirus itself. That's a topic that public health authorities have lied about so consistently that we'll likely never know what the real number is, but we can be confident the toll was in the hundreds of thousands. So on every level, COVID crushed America. Centuries-old traditions just evaporated. It's a different country and not a better one. But that doesn't mean that everybody suffered under COVID. Countless small businesses were under that devastated our middle class. But at the same time, thanks to the lockdowns, the tech monopolies thrived. Apple, Google, Amazon all saw their market caps explode. Jeff Bezos wound up much richer than ever before, not that he needed the money. But no group benefited more from the COVID pandemic than the leaders of communist China. By April of 2021, that would be more than a year into COVID, when we were suffering here in China, the GDP had reached the highest level ever recorded. Chinese economy was growing faster after the pandemic than it had been before the pandemic. And as a result of that, China will soon overtake the United States as the world's dominant economy. Soon. Now, if someone had predicted that to you 10 years ago, you would have laughed. It would have seemed ridiculous. But that was before COVID. Now it's real. And COVID made it possible. In other words, the coronavirus didn't simply change the United States. The coronavirus changed the balance of power in the world forever. So when you think of COVID that way, and that's the way the people who run governments think about it, trust us. When you think of it that way, it becomes pretty obvious that this was more than an overhyped public health emergency. In fact, it may very well have been a crime, the greatest crime in history. Was it? It's hard to think of a more important question than that. And yet our leaders seem curiously uninterested in answering it. Shortly after Joe Biden took office, he ordered the intel agencies to determine where COVID came from. And the report he got back stunned him. It was inconclusive. There are two theories, of course. One was that COVID came from a lab leak in Wuhan. The other was it came from a pangolin or some kind of animal. Here's what the intel agency said. The majority of elements within the intel community do not believe there's sufficient information to assess one to be more likely than the other. That may seem like not a big deal to you, but if you were the Democratic Party, if you'd spent a year dismissing any talk of a lab leak as a racist conspiracy theory, this was stunning. Because it suggested that actually the CIA thought it was entirely possible that the Chinese government manufactured coronavirus. So in May of last year, Joe Biden publicly, very publicly, sent that report back to the intel agencies and told them to, quote, redouble their efforts to find out where COVID came from. And he gave them a deadline of 90 days. 
In August, the report arrived. It was just a page and a half long, but it was more conclusive. Quote, one IC element assesses with moderate confidence that the first human in infection with the SARS-CoV-2 most likely was the result of a laboratory-associated incident probably involving experimentation, animal handling, or sampling by the Wuhan Institute of Virology, end quote. Now, that should have been a running headline for months after it was, and it almost immediately disappeared, but think about what they're saying. A lot of people in the intel community believe this came from a lab, not on talk radio, people who work at the CIA. And there are a lot of reasons to think they're right. State Department officials had visited that lab in Wuhan back in 2018. And according to the Washington Post, quote, they sent two official warnings back to Washington about inadequate safety at the lab, which was conducting risky studies on coronavirus from bats. Then it turns out one of the biggest funders of the Wuhan lab, that'd be a man called Peter Daszak, who received millions in grants from Tony Fauci, boasted about manipulating coronaviruses in a lab right before the pandemic began. Remember this? Coronaviruses are pretty good. I mean, you're a virologist, you know all this stuff, but they, you can um, manipulate them in the lab pretty easily. It's yeah. just spike protein drives a lot of what happens with the yeah. coronavirus, uh, zoonotic risk. So you can get the sequence, you can build the protein, and we work with Ralph Barrick at UNC mm -hmm. to do this, um, insert it into the backbone of another virus right. and do, do some work in the lab. That's an incredibly incriminating piece of tape. And yet that man, Peter Daszak, has not been hauled before a congressional committee. Has the CIA spoken to him? There's no evidence that they have. It looks to be that the experiments he was conducting, in part with American tax dollars, may have led to the destruction of the U.S. economy and millions of deaths. The Times of London reported that a virus 96% identical to the Wuhan coronavirus had been found in an abandoned copper mine in China in 2012. That virus was collected in 2013 and then stored and studied at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And then on this show, we spoke to a Chinese virologist who says she was at the scene, who said that COVID originated from a lab experiment. All this was taking place in public. Our intel agencies could not deny it. But in their report, they gave Joe Biden an out. In their report that was not even two pages long, they said that in order to reach a definitive conclusion about where the virus came from, we would need the help from the government of China. And of course, the intel agencies knew we would never get that help. Quote, China's cooperation most likely would be needed to reach a conclusive assessment of the origins of COVID-19. So if you're the Biden administration and you really wanted to know where COVID came from, that line would justify putting immense pressure on the government of China to hand over the answers so we could find out what the hell just happened. But Joe Biden didn't do that. A few months after the Intel community's second report came out, a reporter asked Joe Biden, why haven't you followed up on their recommendation and pressured the government of China to ask, answer basic questions about where COVID came from? And you may remember this, or maybe you've never seen it before. Here's Biden's response. He just smiled and walked away. 800,000 coronavirus deaths. Um, if you have a statement on your responsibility, why haven't you uh, asked China to do more to be transparent on the origins? He just smiled and walked away. And no one followed up. There was no outrage in the United States Congress. No one in the media yelled at him for that. It was clear that Joe Biden had zero interest in finding out where the virus came from and whether or not China was involved. Now, why is that? Well, the Chinese government has made Joe Biden's family extraordinarily rich. 
richer than we knew. In fact, we just learned from the Washington Free Beacon that the Biden administration has sent a million barrels of oil from our, not belonging to him, but to us, the American people, our strategic petroleum reserve to a Chinese-owned energy company that Hunter Biden has invested in. Remember they used to tell you that the Trump kids were so corrupt? All of them got poorer after four years of the Trump administration. But not Joe Biden's son. But it's not just Biden and his administration that has ignored China's potential involvement in creating COVID. The media are not interested either. Why is that? Well, keep in mind the government of China pays American media a lot of money. And in exchange, why not ignore what could be the crime of the century? In recent years, China has spent tens of millions of dollars on advertising in American newspapers. That would include the New York Times. And maybe that's why the New York Times COVID reporter, Apurva Mandeli, sent out, sent out this tweet last year. Quote, someday we will stop talking about the lab leak theory and maybe even admit its racist roots. But last, that day is not yet here. So it was racist to ask whether the outbreak of a global pandemic in Wuhan might be related to the Chinese government lab in Wuhan that was experimenting on a version of the same virus. Yeah, that was racist. But the entire media took that posture throughout the pandemic. Note that it's a foreign virus, which it is, and you're a racist. But neither should we panic or fall back on xenophobia. Labeling COVID-19 a foreign virus does not displace accountability. The president referred to the coronavirus as a, quote, foreign virus. And I think it's going to smack, uh, it's going to come across to a lot of Americans as smacking of uh, xenophobia. The administration's labeling of this virus as foreign is undoubtedly playing into the rising xenophobia about it. Trump isn't cautioning us to check our racism, but is rather stoking xenophobic sentiment. The president says it's a foreign virus as if this was launched on us like an attack. We know what that's about. That's about him playing xenophobia, works with his base. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? Why do you keep using this? Because it comes from it's China. Racist. It's not racist at all, no, not at all. It comes from China. These people, they're stupid and they're dishonest, but it's more than that. Where did this talking point come from? It's racist to point out that COVID came from China. Well, this talking point became prevalent in March of 2020. And it just so happens, that's exactly when China's state-owned media tweeted that terms like Wuhan coronavirus were racist. Before China's government issued that order, our media here in the United States didn't recognize the term Wuhan coronavirus as a slur. In fact, they themselves said it constantly. Here's the proof. The Wuhan coronavirus has now surpassed the 2003 SARS outbreak. The first U.S. case of Chinese coronavirus was confirmed at her one of her hospitals. Inside that building is the world's first lab-grown copy of the Wuhan coronavirus outside mainland China. The Chinese coronavirus death toll has jumped to at least 26 people. The death toll from the Wuhan coronavirus spiked today. The Chinese virus, the coronavirus that is worrying the whole world. So those clips are all from February of 2020. Chinese media tells them that the term Chinese coronavirus, Wuhan coronavirus, those are racist terms. So the American media immediately declares that those are racist terms. They're taking their orders directly from Chinese state media. So are you surprised? They're not really interested in finding out where the COVID virus came from. 
But we're interested in the topic, and it turns out there's a lot of very interesting information that the Intel community somehow left out of its page-and-a-half-long report. We're going to start in May of 2021. That's when Joe Biden ordered the Intel community to assess this. But we're going to include information that they left out. Here it is. On May 5th of 2021, a former New York Times science reporter called Nicholas Wade wrote in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists a review of something called the furin cleavage site of the virus. That's something that increases the viral infectivity of human cells. His analysis included this quote from David Baltimore, who's a virologist and former president of the California Institute of Technology. Quote, when I first saw the furin cleavage site in the viral sequence with its arginine codons, I said to my wife, it was the smoking gun for the origin of the virus. These features make a powerful challenge to the idea of a natural origin for SARS-2. In other words, when I looked carefully at the virus, I realized it was man-made. And then later in May, 18 prominent scientists published a letter in the journal Science saying a new investigation was needed because, quote, theories of accidental release from the lab and zoonotic spillover both remain viable. Now, keep in mind, this is how scientists write. But the headline is, actually, the lab leak theory might not be a theory. Now, among the people who signed that letter was Ralph Barrick. He's a virologist from the United States who works closely with Shi Zhengli. That's the infamous bat lady from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. If Ralph Barrick's name seems familiar to you, it's because that name was in many internal emails that we now have seen from inside the National Institutes of Health. Those emails came out in June of 2021. And in those emails, we learned that in the earliest days of the pandemic, researchers warned Tony Fauci that the virus appeared to come from a lab, that it wasn't natural, it was man-made. Christian Anderson, a virologist at the Scripps Institute in La Jolla, California, wrote this, quote, The unusual features of the virus make up a really small part of the genome, less than 0.1%. So one has to look really closely at all the sequences to see that some of the features potentially look engineered. This is the very beginning. People who are looking through microscopes at the virus said to themselves, wait a second, someone made this. The emails also show that Tony Fauci demanded information about gain-of-function experiments from his subordinates, particularly gain-of-function experiments in Wuhan. Fauci then sent an urgent email to his deputy, a man called Hugh Auchincloss. The subject of that email is in all caps, and it was this. Important, quote, Hugh. It is essential that we speak this AM. Keep your cell phone on. Read this paper as well as the email that I will forward. You will have tasks today that must be done. End quote. Fauci then attached a document to the email mail, titled Barrick, She, et al., Nature Medicine, SARS Gain and Function, PDF. Now, keep in mind that Tony Fauci denied under oath that Ralph Barrick, a researcher in the United States, had ever conducted gain and function research in Wuhan. And yet here was Tony Fauci emailing his subordinates about Ralph Barrick's work with Wuhan's bat lady, who was the person conducting infamous experiments on bat coronaviruses that may have changed the global order. They may have caused this pandemic and put China ahead of the United States and therefore in charge of the world. Now, around the same time, the email showed the director of the NIH, the now completely discredited Francis Collins, was trying to bury the lab leak theory. Collins wanted his underlings to find, quote, something NIH can do to help put down this very destructive conspiracy, end quote. Now, keep in mind, Francis Collins, at the very same time, was running around telling everyone what a great Christian he was. 
and doing all these interviews with the evangelical websites, telling people to listen to what Tony Fauci was saying. Believe the U.S. government. No, the lab leak theory is ridiculous. Get the vax. That was Francis Collins. Well, it turns out he was lying. But none of this made it into the intel agency's one and a half page report to Joe Biden. Neither did the news that the Wuhan lab spent hundreds of millions of dollars on a new filtration system shortly after the pandemic began. Really? On September 16th, 2019, nearly three months after the first reported cases of COVID-19 emerged, the Wuhan lab agreed to spend $606 million on a, quote, central air conditioning renovation project. $606 million. It's a lot for HVAC. So in the face of all of this evidence, which at this point is overwhelming, the World Health Organization, of all places, is demanding a new investigation into the origins of COVID. Keep in mind, WHO rigged the last investigation by making Peter Daszak the sole U.S. investigator. But officials in this country, for reasons we can't understand, are still resisting efforts to find out what was happening at the Wuhan lab, with, by the way, the support of U.S. taxpayer. Now, what's the Wuhan lab up to now? Well, it may come as a surprise to you that at the Wuhan lab, they're now working on monkeypox viruses. In fact, they're more than working on monkeypox viruses. They're assembling new monkeypox viruses. According to one study underway at this moment, quote, since MPXV infection, that'd be monkeypox, has never been associated with an outbreak in China, the viral genomic material required for a qPCR detection is unavailable. And therefore, the lab has to engage in, quote, viral DNA recombinations, creating a fragment of the virus from the ground up, which they call a, quote, fail safe. In other words, Frankenstein crap with monkey pox. Amazing. In the face of all of this, the White House has buried any real investigation into the origins of COVID. And so this research is allowed to continue. Research that could make COVID look like nothing. No one's saying anything about this. So tonight we want to talk to someone who has not been in lockstep, someone who from the very beginning has been brave enough to point to the most obvious origin of COVID, and that would be the lab in Wuhan. And that man's name is Stephen Mosier. We first talked to him in February of 2020. Well, I think I think it escaped from the lab because uh, we have the Chinese government basically telling us that it did. Wuhan is the only level four laboratory in all of China. So that's where you would put a dangerous pathogen. Whether you were genetically engineering it to be a weapon or not, that's where you would be experimenting on it. So it makes sense that the epicenter of the epidemic, that the lab there would be the source of that virus. Stephen Mosher was the first person we heard say that. Very few honest people would disagree at this point. Steve Moser is the so author of the Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics, and he joins us tonight. Thanks so much for coming on. Again, I think you've been vindicated. Thank you, Tucker. Um, but not in the pages <laughs> of the New York Times and not from the podium in the White House briefing room. And you have to wonder, how is it two and a half years later, when the entire world order has been reshuffled thanks to this virus, that the Biden administration and the U.S. Congress aren't trying to find out where it came from? Well, Tucker, I appreciate the vindication from you much more than I would a vindication from The New York Times, which I hardly read anymore and probably won't read at all in the future. Uh, look, you know, if, if you look back at the history of pandemics, uh, communist China is the great 
epicenter of pandemics over the last 70 years. Uh, the Hong Kong flu in 68 came from China. We call it the Hong Kong flu. That's a misnomer. Uh, the Asian flu in 58 came from China. China hit it for months on end before telling the world there was a dangerous virus on the loose, even after tens of thousands of people in China were dying. A million people died around the world because the Chinese Communist Party covered it up. And then again in 2003 with SARS-1, November, a snake seller in Guangdong province in southern China, died from a snake coronavirus. He was handling raw snake meat or eating raw snake meat, we don't know. But China did the same thing. It covered it up for months. It doctored the data saying that it wasn't as infectious as it actually was. They silenced whistleblowers. They lied to the World Health Organization repeatedly. And at the end of the day, it wasn't uh, China that revealed the existence of the epidemic. It was Western intelligence services that said, look, there's something dangerous going on in China. And at the same time, they said it was a foreign actor who unleashed a bioterrorist weapon in China. This was back in 2003. Does that all sound familiar? That's the same playbook that we saw in 2019 and 2020. We should have been ready for it. China, again, communist China is the great breeding ground of pandemics. This pandemic is different, though, because it was started in the lab and it was released deliberately on the world. And why more people aren't talking about it, uh, I don't understand. Well, it, it, it tells you how beholden people feel to the Chinese government. But, of course, China's the big winner in yes. all this. That's been obvious since the beginning. Stephen Moser, I, I really appreciate your coming on. And I hope we see you again. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. So we've been hearing a lot over the last year about our sacred norms respecting our ancient forms of government here in the United States, otherwise known as democracy. And yet, weirdly, when Joe Biden doesn't like a Supreme Court decision, he decides to undermine the Supreme Court, in this case, on Roe v. Wade. He gave an announcement today in which he essentially said, I don't care what the court says. Sounds like an attack on democracy. We've got tail straight ahead. Okay, we'll keep an eye on uh, Tucker Carlson. But first of all, I've got this one really amazing, simple trick that, that virtually guarantees that you will not come down with monkeypox. And that simple trick is don't participate in gay orgies. Just that one simple trick, and you are virtually immune from catching monkeypox. Now, just an absolutely devastating story here in, in the New York Times, man. I mean, you just just won't won't believe what uh, what what we're seeing here, and uh, just absolutely absolutely heartbreaking. And uh, let let me go to these just uh, frightening frightening details. All right? Did you know that the U.S. may be losing the fight against monkeypox? And why are we losing the fight against monkeypox? You may be saying, oh, it's because people won't stop going to gay orgies. No, you have to listen to the experts. All right. Scientists say we may be losing the fight against monkeypox. Why? Because of longstanding weaknesses in the public health system are giving the virus a chance to become entrenched. So it's not, you know, a bunch of blokes buggering each other that is giving the virus a chance to become entrenched. It's not one bloke entrenching himself in, in another bloke. Right? That's not why we're losing the fight against monkeypox. How dare you even think of asking people to restrict their participation in gay orgies. Participating in gay orgies is what this country is all about. 
right? That's that's one of our that's one of our fundamental rights, and and if you don't get that, then then I'm just sad for you, right? I mean, how, how can you how can you not understand that one of our fundamental rights is is participating in in the, the gay orgies, man? Right. So, how, how did we get to this this really sad state? And this this poor young man, right? His story is absolutely heartbreaking. And thank God the the New York Times protects his anonymity. But but when I heard about his story, right in San Francisco, B. His name's B. He's a 43 year old medical writer. Whilst that his name be withheld for privacy reasons, he found himself shivering uncontrollably with a high fever on June 14. Eight days after he had multiple sexual encounters at a bathhouse in Chicago. So if this country stands for anything, it's that you should be able to have multiple sexual encounters at bathhouses in Chicago and all over the Great Fruited Plain. And then not have to worry when you come down with shivering uncontrollably whether or not you've caught monkeypox. And who's responsible for these blokes catching monkeypox? Well, it's we're just not funding public health services. We're not listening to the experts, guys. I mean, listen to what he went through. When a blister appeared on his wrist on Friday afternoon, he immediately suspected monkeypox. But his health care provider said the city's health department would not be able to pick up his sample till Tuesday, June 21, after the Juneteenth holiday. So America goes crazy celebrating Juneteenth. And it leaves us woefully unprepared to deal with the threat of, of monkeypox. Right? What kind of healthcare system do we have that's not able to pick up his sample for seven days a week? I mean, this bloke was able to walk into a bathhouse in Chicago, and innumerable other blokes were more than happy to pick up his sample. But when he tries to do the right thing, right, when he tries to abide by the, the rules, right, it takes a week. And guess what? No one reached out to him to ask about his contacts, right? When he went to the bathhouse in Chicago, like every bloke was reaching out to him. But but when he tries to do the right thing, no one's reaching out to him to ask about his contacts. Now, does he even know the names of his contacts? That's a question. No one offered him vaccines. Can you believe that? I mean, he came back from multiple sexual encounters at a bathhouse in Chicago, and he's shivering uncontrollably. And no one is even offering this poor bloke vaccines, right? They're not even offering vaccines to his roommate or to his partner. So he's, he's having multiple sexual encounters at a bathhouse in Chicago. But don't think for one second that that detracts from his highly committed relationship with his partner, nor his relationships with, with his roommate and his relationships with all sorts of wonderful people in the San Francisco Bay Area, right? So... It was a week later before his sample was picked up. The following Wednesday, all right, two weeks after he'd contacted his doctor, he was told he'd tested positive for monkey virus. Now, great news. By then, his lesions had healed. He no longer needed to isolate. He could get back out there. He could recapture his sense of confidence at the local bathhouse. And he, he's very philosophical about this. I think we can all learn from, from his example. He tells the New York Times, two blisters and a rash on my butt. It's not the worst I've had in my life. I mean, what a wonderful attitude. All right. 
when when you're suffering, I want you to think about this 43-year-old wonderful American who came back from Chicago after multiple encounters at a, at a bathhouse and has to wait two weeks for his monkeypox diagnosis. And in the end, he heals up real quick, like, and he looks back with, with philosophy. He's got a Christ-like attitude. Two blisters and a rash on my butt is not the worst I've had in my life. But given his experience, I don't think we're prepared for another pandemic of something that's actually serious. See, the problem is you, right? It's white male privilege. It's, it's, it's got to be someone outside of this nice young man, all right? So we're just not funding public health enough. That's the problem. And it's just so sad to see how we're failing this young man and other wonderful young Americans who want to go have multiple encounters at, at bathhouses and we're just not, not, not standing by them in their time of need. Drug ODs and suicides spike. Birth rate craters. Life expectancy drops. Joe Biden doesn't notice any of it, doesn't say a word. But the idea that people might not be having enough abortions in this country, Biden goes completely insane. Nothing bothers him more. We need more abortions now. And so today, Joe Biden signed an executive order on so-called abortion rights. Here's what it looked like. And let me be clear. While I wish it had not come to this, this is the fastest route available. I'm just stating a basic fundamental notion. The fastest way to restore Roe Ro, is to pass a national law codifying Roe, which I will sign immediately upon its passage on, at my desk. People might not be having enough abortions. Too many babies in this country. That's Joe Biden's problem. At exactly the moment when there are fewer babies than ever in this country. But Joe Biden wants even fewer. So he's directing HHS to do whatever it can. He's establishing an interagency task force on reproductive health care access. That means more abortion. Mayor Garland, of course, is supposed to be the attorney general. He's really a malicious buffoon. He's part of it. Why would the attorney general be part of that? Going to mandate abortions? Arrest you if you don't have enough abortions? But Biden said all of this is necessary because more abortions are, quote, the practice of medicine. This is the horrific reality that Rose sought to end. The practice of medicine should not, should not be frozen in the 19th century. So there are legal questions here, and no one's even bothering to ask them in the media. Is this legal? And what's in it? Instead, CNN is celebrating. Woo, more Joe Biden. We love him. More abortion. Here's CNN. First of all, I know I'm competing with President Biden, so I just want to make sure people know where I stand <laughs> on the women's right to choose right here. Oh, make sure. They, okay, there we go. There we go. There we go. Yeah, that's healthy. <laughs> this country's moving in the right direction. Some guy in a pink T-shirt saying I'm abetting abortion? Yeah, okay. Even if you're for legal abortion, even if you're Roe v. Wade, are you for that? You think that's a good thing? I'm abetting abortion, not I'm abetting childbirth or helping raise my kids or marrying their mom. I want more abortion. Are you, are you, are you happy with that? But according to Reuters, quote, Biden officials are exploring ways to provide abortion access for pregnant girls in U.S. immigration custody in states with bans. Oh, so if you sneak into this country legally, the one thing we're going to give you, you guessed it, an abortion. Is this legal? 
Well, to answer that question, we're going to the legal authority we trust first and foremost. That would be Harmeet Dillon, CEO at the Center for American Liberty. She joins us tonight. Harmeet, thanks so much for coming on. So I thought we were supposed to respect the Supreme Court and its decisions. That would be one of our norms that we're preserving. No? Well, no, not under this administration, Tucker. As you know, these people value their death merchants, really, when, they come, when it comes to pushing abortion. And it is a religion with the left. And so they're very yeah. upset that one of their tenets has been struck down. And they're going to virtue signal and try to tell their electorate that they're going to do something about it. But what I want to first reassure your viewers, Tucker, is that while he got onto the stage flanked by his death merchants on either side from California, Kamala Harris and Javier Becerra, and promised to basically overturn the Dobbs decision through executive order, he doesn't have the power to do that. And in fact, most of this executive order is putting together task forces and exploring uh, protecting this and directing that. But it's really coloring within the lines of existing federal jurisdiction for the most part. And so not much is going to change. The president is impotent to prevent states from implementing laws that are compliant with Dobbs. And that may include banning abortion in most circumstances. And that's, that is the value of the community in most of America. And I might add that polls have been pretty consistent showing that a vast majority of Americans, over 70, sometimes 75 percent, uh, favor some restrictions on abortion, favor bans on third trimester abortion, favor bans on infanticide, which Democrats vote against time and again in the United States Congress. And they want uh, limitations because even according to Democrats historically, according to Joe Biden, according to the Clintons, uh, abortion should be uh, safe, legal, and rare in America. That used to be the Democrats' position. They've completely abandoned that because the far left flank of their party demands this, but it's not popular in America. Yeah, it's some sort of weird cult, and it's given me the creeps. And it's not going to go a good place, I would say. Harmeet Dillon, thank you for that analysis. Thank you. So a group of Antifa in Washington is offering money to anyone who finds and harasses a Supreme Court justice in public. Where's the DOJ on this? But there's something you can do to stop it. And we'll tell you what it is next. Hey, I've been reading the, the New York Times and watching CNN. I, I've been told that there's no such thing as Antifa, guys. Antifa is just some vast right-wing conspiracy. But... Let, let's learn from this courageous young man. All right. He, he came down with monkeypox, but he's got a message for us. And I mean, sure, like you can, you can go to a bathhouse and you can have, you know, 50 men run a train on you. But what's important is, are you vaxxed? Are you double, triple, quadruple vaxxed? Are, are you wearing a mask? Are you prepped? All right. Do you, do you get the prep to, to make sure you, you don't come down with, with AIDS? And it's our public health system, man. Why, why is it now public health system, you know, on the ball so that people can go out to bathhouses and have unlimited anonymous sex without worrying about negative repercussions? I mean, are you trying to stigmatize, you know, gay orgies, bro? I mean, gay orgies are what this country is all about. So, yeah, he, he got a few blisters right and you you're probably saying 40 i had worse after a 10-day meth fueled orgy in spain so a real real triumph of the human spirit here so 
New York Times as epidemics go, the monkeypox outbreak should have been relatively easy to snuff out. Yes, it simply would have required people to stop participating in gay orgies. But no, we can't ask that. We can't ask anything of minority groups, whether they're Jewish or black or transgendered or whatever the protected group is. We can never ask anything of them. We can never ask that uh, people desist from from dangerous activity, right? And, and you're saying, 40, does boofing meth with other naked men, does that increase or decrease my chances of contracting monkeypox? And the answer is it increases. So how about we ask people to stop boofing meth and participating in, in gay orgies? And if you can't criticize people, like any people, gay, straight, black, white, Christian, Jewish, Japanese, if you can't criticize people for engaging in dangerous practices, right, that put the health of society at risk, then you essentially end or meaningful intercourse with them. And then what are you left with? You're left with furtive backstage passes through the glory hole of the bathhouse. I mean, is that really, really what we want? And LA Times is right on the ball. I mean, the greatest problem with this monkeypox is that it might increase stigma against gay orgies. Okay, so gay and bisexual men who account for most of Europe's monkeypox cases so far, like it's going to change, guys, are once again in danger of being stigmatized, right, as carriers of an exotic and frightening disease, just as they were during the AIDS crisis. We can't stigmatize gay orgies. That would be, that would just be so wrong. And we can never ask anything of protected groups, right? We can ask everything of white people. We can ask everything of Christians, right? We can ask everything of the dominant majority, but we can never ask anything of protected groups. You can't even criticize certain groups publicly. If I criticized gays or transgendered or, or Jews or blacks or, or Latinos or Mexican-Americans or Chinese-Americans, if I criticize particular groups, I would be deleted from YouTube, right? Deleted from any major social media. So you can't criticize any groups. But accurate criticism makes us all better, right? If you take away the power to accurately criticize people, you're not doing them any favors, and you're simply building up resentment, right? We, your accurate criticism makes me better. My accurate criticism makes, makes you better. But uh, we got this Munich AIDS group here saying, there's a fear that certain groups will see this as a welcome opportunity to say, look, homosexuals have brought upon us a new disease. Well, then why not ask those few members of your group who are participating in reckless, dangerous, socially destructive, unhealthy behavior to desist, to just take a break from the gay orgies for a while? Right? Why is it our problem that you have a tiny number of people in your group who won't desist from engaging in, in gay orgies? So we got another activist there, public health. No, there's a public health official in Germany. He was criticized for singling out men who have anonymous sex as being especially at risk. So this head of, head of public health in Germany, all right, he got a lot of criticism for simply noting the truth that men who engage in anonymous sex are especially at risk. They're not just especially at risk of monkeypox. They're not especially at risk of all sorts of horrific diseases. Right? They're not just at risk for their psychological health and their well-being. Right? A whole bunch of reasons that they're at risk. It's really bad for your soul to be out there having tons of anonymous sex. 
right? Whether you're straight or gay, Jewish, black, Christian, it's bad for you. Why can't people just say that? Shinzo Abe was the longest serving prime minister in the history of Japan. Whatever you thought of him, assuming you thought anything at all, the Japanese loved him. He won all three of his elections by big majorities. He left office in 2020 for health reasons, but he remained one of the biggest political figures in the country. He believed in nationalism. He fought China's efforts to take over other countries, particularly Taiwan. Today, he was murdered at the age of 67. He was shot to death while delivering a speech for another candidate just a few days ahead of Japan's upper house elections, which take place on Sunday. A 41-year-old man carrying what appeared to be a homemade gun walked up behind him and shot him. Watch. Not surprisingly, Chinese state media gloated about his death. The state-run Global Times called Abe a, quote, controversial Japanese figure who once contributed to China-Japan relations, but later tore those achievements apart. Then, not surprisingly, our media here in the United States, which takes millions of dollars from the Chinese government, echoed the Chinese view. The Associated Press went with this headline, Shinzo Abe, powerful former Japan PM, leaves divided legacy. Our own state media, NPR, called Abe a, quote, ultra-nationalist, in other words, a Nazi. CBS reported that he was a, quote, polarizing figure, even though, once again, he was the most popular Japanese prime minister in modern history. A polarizing figure, he was a right-wing nationalist and conservative and a fierce supporter of Japan's military. He fought to amend the country's pacifist constitution in the face of the rising threat from China. Shinzo Abe was mostly polarizing in New York at media companies that take their cues from the Chinese government. But few people are more dependent on money from China than the Biden family. So today, maybe not surprisingly, Joe Biden used the death of Abe as a justification to push his domestic agenda. Quote, we know that violent attacks are never acceptable and that gun violence always leaves a deep scar in communities that are affected by it. So you use the death of a former prime minister to talk about your stupid gun control agenda. Everything about Biden is fake. From his hair, to his face, to his teeth, to his skin, to the human emotions that he apes on TV. It's repulsive. But speaking of violence, on Wednesday, a mob of Antifa harassed Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who was eating dinner at a steakhouse in Washington. Now, keep in mind, Brett Kavanaugh was just the subject of a murder attempt the other day. But they're still going after him. DOJ's done nothing. The group responsible for this is called Shutdown DC. Again, they're an Antifa group. They just put out a tweet calling for people to report sightings of conservative Supreme Court justices. DOJ has done nothing. But there is something that you can do to stop this. So get a pen right now. We're stealing this from a user on Twitter. Someone texted this to us today, and it was, it's brilliant. And we're quoting. Flood them with reported sightings until they give up. Now, that's genius, and you can participate right now. So if you'd like to, visit Shutdown DC on Twitter. The account is Shutdown underscore DC, and let them know the 375 places you think Supreme Court justices might be. And if enough people do that, they won't be able to do what they want to do, which is to intimidate judges into bowing to their will. Was this Mexico now? Oh. Uh, we, we are very grateful to be joined now by a man who can sort this out, Victor Davis Hanson, who's a fellow at the Hoover Institution. He joins us live. Uh, Professor, thanks so much for coming on. So calling on 
people to harass Supreme Court justices. Where does this go, do you think? Well, we know where it goes. It goes to uh, Nicholas Roski showing up at the home of Brett Kavanaugh trying, wanting to kill him. We have the most sustained attack uh, on the Supreme Court since the court packing of FDR 85 years ago. I mean, the President of the United States went to a foreign country and attacked the Supreme Court in front of a Spanish host. Law professor Elizabeth Warren said it was illegitimate. We, somebody committed a felony and leaked a confidential memo from the court. It's a, it's a felony to go out in front of a, a justice's home. We had the Senate Minority Leader just two years ago, Chuck Schumer, say that the court, and he named the justices by name, Tucker, Justice Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, you don't know what will hit you. And he said that they had reaped, they had sowed the wind and they reaped the whirlwind. What did he mean by that? They're going to reap the whirlwind and what was going to hit them. And now we have this court packing scheme that arises. It's part of a larger landscape, Tucker, that... The left is a revolutionary, it's like the French revolutionary Jacobin movement. They don't trust any customs, they don't honor any laws. Everything is fluid and it's legal only to the extent that it's useful. So the 180-year filibuster that they used to treasure as a minority party in the Senate, it's, they want to get rid of it. The 150-person, uh, the 150-year nine-person Supreme Court, get rid of it. It's no longer useful. They can't have a Republican justice flip as they did from Warren to David Souter easily anymore. So the, the like adolescents, they're angry. 50-state union we've had for 60 years. Bring in two more states to get senators. Same thing with a national voting law to override the constitutional prerogative of each state to set, you know, balloting laws. And then we have the 200 and well, uh, 32-year-old electoral college, once the blue wall fell, like little kids, they got angry and said, get rid of it. So the, the common denominator is all of this is they look at the law as what's useful for the moment for a progressive agenda. And when that is no longer true, then they try to destroy the institution. And that's what they're doing. And it, it, it's incumbent on everybody to call them out for what they are. Yeah, and to stop it if you can. The activist left is dangerous and people need to stop take- it steps to protect themselves and their families. I appreciate it. Uh, Victor Davis Hanson, as always, thank you. Thank you. There's a brand new show called The Terminal List. Viewers love it. Not all critics do. The man who wrote it, one of the most successful and best writers in America, a novelist called Jack Carr. We're honored to have him on after the break. Investigations are still ongoing into the failures of Operation Odin Sword. Failed missions resulted in the death of 12 Navy SEALs. Yeah, that was a good show. I just uh, watched that. And I, I have a few disagreements with what Tucker was saying earlier at the top of the show. So China is not on a trajectory to overtake the United States. Uh, China is in deep trouble. I I don't believe China will still exist in 10 years. Uh, COVID has not changed the world balance of power. Uh, Chinese vaccines, by and large, are not effective against COVID. So China has been more negatively affected by the coronavirus than America has. You will notice there's been much less talk about the inevitable rise of China over the past couple of years. Now, Tucker talks about a lab leak hypothesis could be the crime of the century. Yes, it absolutely could be the crime of the century, particularly if the United States funded it. And if the funds were directed and overseen by Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins, for which there's considerable evidence. So that 
conspiracy theory, all right, seems to have some legs. Now, also correct, every pretty much every major epidemic over the past 120 years has come from China, including most likely the 1918 so-called Spanish flu, right? That also came from, from China. And in Japan, right, the former prime minister was assassinated, but this could presage just enormous dislocations and disruptions in, in Japan, not because of the assassination, but it's that, that random event that you wouldn't think anything necessarily flows from it and nothing will necessarily flow from it, but it could be a foretelling of tremendous chaos ahead for Japan. I would expect they're going to take back islands that they historically have believed to belong to them, that, that Russia now occupies. Japan is virtually 95% dependent on imports for its energy supply, but there are certain islands that Russia owns, that China believes, that Japan believes belong to them, that uh, I expect China is going to try to take back. And uh, here's some analysis from Peter Zion. This isn't the United States, where the lack of internal barriers to movement means that we're always interacting with and arguing with one another and where challenges and change are the norm. Instead, Japan is a series of mountainous islands with, at best, weak connections among the population centers. Governing Japan traditionally requires the establishment of a very delicate balance among its various regions. Its foreign policy under the United States' globalized order for the last 70 years has been remarkably static, focusing on trade and resource access while part of the American alliance network. These dual balances have served the Japanese very well, and they're actually reminiscent of many of Japan's previous cultural periods. The Japanese strive for stability. Change means a disruption of the balance, and that's pretty common for cultures that are resource poor. Instability itself is the enemy. And so the Japanese and countries like them tend to ignore small changes until those changes build up into something overwhelming, and then it all breaks apart at once. The place changes radically and in a searing matter, almost overnight. Japan is definitely moving towards one of those shakeups now. The American security guarantee is not what it once was. The rise of China has provided a local competitor. Demographic implosion in both China and Japan and around the world is changing economic models. And the post-war global system has taken Japan about as far as it can go. Everything's up in the air now. If Japan is going to have one of those occasional cultural shakeouts, now is about the time that you would expect it to happen. Which suggests that things are about to get very real. The assassination itself, well, obviously not great, is likely not the real problem and just a symptom of a broader societal shift. The last time the Japanese had one, it didn't end until the nuclear destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The time before that, it required the physical liquidation of the samurai as a class. When China changes, it changes everything. It does it wholesale, it does it violently, and it remakes its region. And this time, Japan is already the second strongest naval power with the world's third largest economy. So the implications of this sort of shift are going to be massive. Now, uh, there's an entire chapter in Disunited Nations dedicated to the rise, fall, and now re- Okay, so if, if someone put two destroyers in the Indian Ocean, they could prevent China from importing oil. And then if, if that happened, half of China would, would starve to death in the next six months. So China, China is surrounded by enemies, all right? The United States doesn't have any powerful nations on its borders Mexico and Canada essentially do whatever the United States wants them to do. So, yeah, that's a terrific new series on Amazon. And uh, Tucker is here talking to the writer. 
You recall that earlier this year, Elon Musk said he was going to buy Twitter and restore free speech on the single most important platform for political discussion in this country. Well, there's been a major development in all of that, and Fox's Kevin Cork has it for us right now. Hey, Kevin. Evening, Tucker. You know, sometimes the deals you don't end up making, well, frankly, end up being the very best deals possible. And that's what the world's richest fan is hoping for tonight, as Elon Musk looks to pull the plug on that deal to buy Twitter. Now, it had been actually valued at about $44 billion, but his lawyers claim Twitter has failed to comply with its obligations. For their part, Twitter's board chairman, Brett Taylor, says, I want the deal, and I'll sue to enforce it. As for Musk, well, he's accusing the social media platform of a bit of trickery. Quote, sometimes Twitter has ignored Mr. Musk's requests. This is according to his lawyers. Sometimes it's rejected them for reasons that appear to be unjustified, and sometimes it's claimed to comply when, well, as you see there, while giving Mr. Musk incomplete or sometimes unusable information. Furthermore, Musk has accused the company of making moves without his consent, which, in his team's opinion, constitutes a material breach of contract. And in case you're wondering, very next stop, you guessed it, probably court, which means bring your checkbooks. Tucker? Kevin Cork for us tonight. Thanks so much. You bet. Some of us are still praying for our free speech rights to be returned to us. Well, you may have heard about, maybe have seen the show The Terminal List, and all the critics love it. The viewers definitely do. The Rotten Tomatoes critic score is 40%. The audience score is 95%. And that's always the best possible sign. It's like having lower grades and high SAT scores. It means you're impressive. Here's a clip. It stars Chris Pratt. Can you outline the details of your mission? They knew we were coming. According to the audio logs, you went dark on comms roughly four mics in. Why? That's not how it went down. Answers or blood? Blood. Where's James Reese? Is it true your fugitive is a Navy SEAL? There's a bunch of people tracking you right now, so just lay low. I'm not going to tell you again. Stay off my list. Whatever you think of Amazon, pretty cool that they made it. Terminal List is based, of course, on a best-selling book by Jack Carr. He's one of the executive producers. He's a former Navy SEAL, one of the best-selling novelists in America. One of the good guys. Jack Carr, thanks so much for coming on. So it must, it must please, first of all, congratulations on the book, the many books, this um, show. But it must please you in a way, not all viewers hate it, not all critics hate it, but viewers like it much more than critics. How do you feel about that? Oh, it, it uh, falls right in line with everything uh, that I understand about the current culture and climate in America right now. And it seems to have triggered quite a few of these critics. And I have a couple examples here. Daily Beast titled their review, The Terminal List is an unhinged right-wing revenge fantasy, which is odd <laughs> because right, left, conservative, liberal are not even mentioned in the show. But uh, I think it may be because the protagonist is competent with uh, weapons and tactics. He's strong. He holds those in power accountable. Uh, and that can be unsettling for some, particularly some maybe senior members of the military who have failed upwards over the last 20 years. Uh, they go on to write, there is some serious danger to the terminalist pandering to red state viewers with routine references to beer, guns, country music, 
and hunting. Uh, the Daily Beast does not like those things. It does not sound like it is much fun over there, but the 95% uh, the uh, viewer rating, audience rating makes it all worth it. We didn't make it for the critics. Uh, we made it for those in the arena. We made it for the soldier, sailor, airman, and marine that went downrange to Iraq and Afghanistan so they could sit on the couch and say, hey, these guys put in the work. They put in the effort to make something special and make a show that speaks, uh, speaks to them. And that 95% rating lets me know that we at least got close. And then uh, one more line here. It's from TV Line. It says, the Fugitive Meets SEAL Team meets a Don't Tread on Me truck decal. We're served up huge helpings of red meat masculinity and lots and lots of American flags. They don't like American flags over there. Game ra uh, Rant even cites Revolutionary War era Don't Tread on Me flags as a negative. So it's odd that both Game Rants and TV Line had to go back to the 1700s to take the side of the British in their reviews. I found that uh, quite telling. <laughs> but uh, some wrote a, a horrible review of one of my latest novel, In the Blood, and they said uh, something along the lines of, what, what do you even call a book like this? And uh, you call it a, a number one New York Times best-selling novel, and someone wrote the same thing about this show, and uh, you call that the number one series on Prime Video. And I do want to thank Amazon, because they took a lot of risks with this show, and they took those risks yeah. with us, and uh, so my hat is, uh, is off to them, and I'm sincerely humbled and, and grateful. Jack Carr, who not that long ago was wearing government-issued clothing, carrying a rifle in weird countries. It is just amazing how successful you have been and, and wonderful, wonderful to watch, for real. Jack Carr, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. Take care. We've got more news for you after the break. Okay, so I see uh, Nick Fuentes is speaking on modern-day debate. In today's society. Thank you very much. That's it. We'll kick it over to Nick and then to Hate for the last one. Go ahead, Nick. <clears throat> okay. Um, well, thank you for having me. Great to be joining all of you, especially Hunter. It's been a tough, it's a tough debate to get with this guy. Big shot. But, uh, Sorry, it's glad. been tough with the trad life. You know how it is, man. I understand. Yes. Uh, well, so let me let me just launch into my opening statement. There is clearly and obviously a war against men, uh, but I'm, I'm going to take a little bit of a different angle. I don't think it has actually anything to do with uh, what women want, per se, and you know, how this is affecting women. And, and I agree that the transgender deal as an assault on men. But I also think that the war on men started a lot longer, uh, a longer time ago than just the recent trans debacle, which is really just metastasized recently. The war on men is, uh, is really all about feminism and the elevation of women to the exclusion of men, which started with women's suffrage, women's rights a hundred and some years ago. Um, revolution and liberation of women and the advancement of women has, has come at the exclusion of men and women are replacing men in university, in the workplace, we're being told the future is female. And, you know, what is the implication? There's no future for the boys, no future for men. Uh, what is that supposed to mean? Men are in the past? I don't think so. Uh, so I think that you look at all the institutions in the world, they're having a feminizing influence, whether that's in uh, primary schools, in the workplace with the HR departments. Men are being uh, filled up with pills and beer full of phytoestrogen being made to watch football. And there's a war on all the masculine regimes and institutions in the world, such as the state of Russia, the Taliban, military, police, things like that. Uh, even the black men are under attack. They're putting all the black rappers in dresses. Black rappers used to be last vestige of masculinity because they beat women and called them bitches and shot people. And now uh, Kid Cudi's wearing a dress on Saturday Night Live. So there's a worldwide war on men. We need to replace it with a worldwide war on women. Uh, and, and so I think that's two minutes. So, so that's my opening statement. You got it. We'll kick it to Hake for the final. Okay. And uh, let's get Zion on what's going on in Russia. Hey, everyone. Peter Zion here. Happy 4th of July weekend. Uh, with it being a national holiday and all that, I thought it would be a great time to talk about coups. Uh, specifically, one of the comments, excuse me, one of the questions I get asked most often about events in the Ukraine war is when is somebody going to off Putin? And the, uh, what's his name? Uh, General 
I can't remember his name. Some major general who works for Ukrainian intelligence keeps uh, throwing out rumors there that Putin has blood cancer and that a coup is imminent. I think he's had this like five times now in the last three months. Anyway, uh, I can't tell you whether or not Putin is sick. He's clearly on some sort of steroids, but that could mean anything. But that doesn't mean that a successful coup, even if it did happen, would change the war. From the Russian point of view, this is a conflict for their existential survival. Russian territory is flat. It's open. It's difficult to defend. It's low value. It's low, lightly populated. They've never been able to generate the capital that's necessary to build a good rail network. And so their military forces do not fight moving battles very well. We're seeing in that in Ukraine over and over and over. It's very a slow plotting force wed to rail lines, which means that should a foe ever get fast and loose in the Eurasian territories in the heart of Russia, the Russians are screwed. They've, they've lost far more wars than they've won because they can't maneuver. Their best hope is that the weather will eventually wear the invaders out. That means if the Russians are going to have a forward defense, it has to be way forward, not within their own territories, within someone else's, and not just any territories, a series of very specific corridors. Russian strategy going back roughly four centuries has been to expand past the Russian flats until you hit a series of geographic barriers that you just can't run tanks through. So things like the Carpathian Mountains, great buffers. No one's running a tank over the Carpathians. What you do is you evade around the Carpathians. You come in from the southwest through the Bessarabian Gap, through Poland, or excuse me, through uh, Romania or Bulgaria, or you come in around the north through the Polish Gap, through Germany and Poland. So the Russian position is, the Russian position always has been to park static forces in those gaps. There are nine of them. The Soviets controlled all nine. When the Soviet system collapsed, they went from nine to one. Ukraine is just unfortunate enough to be on the path to another two. And so getting back to those gaps, that's what this war has always been about and why this war was always going to happen. Now, we can't give the Russians what they want because those gaps are either on the territory or in between the territories of Russia and the gaps are 20 odd countries with a combined population of nearly a quarter of a billion, considerably larger population than Russia itself. Uh, so, you know, there's no way that everyone can be happy here and the Russians are not focusing on making anyone happy. But that means that even if there was a coup tomorrow, that probably wouldn't change the position of the Russian government in the war, because this is not Putin's war. This is a Russian war. This would have happened under any government. And whoever might be willing to take over would probably continue to prosecute the war just as it has been. Right. So even if there's a coup, it's not going to really make that much of a difference in Russian policy. So let's catch the last uh, bit of Tucker. That's about it for us tonight. Repeat the line. That's about it for us tonight. Sorry, Biden joke. Our friend Greg Jarrett's in for Sean tonight. Have the best night with the ones you love. We'll see you Monday. Welcome, everyone, to this special edition of Hannity. I'm Greg Jarrett in for Sean. Tonight, top Democrats and their friends in the liberal media all but begging President Biden to do something, anything, 
on a variety of key issues. In response, today the White House signed a rather useless executive order on abortion rights that does little to nothing. Just another political stunt from a White House that is truly incompetent in every way. What else would you expect from a president who struggles with basic tasks like, uh, you know, walking and talking, even with the assistance of a teleprompter? Watch this. It is noteworthy that the percentage of women who register to vote and cast a ballot is consistently higher than the percentage of the men who do so. End of quote. Repeat the line. Women are not without electoral and or political or, or maybe precise, not and or or political power. Truly a Ron Burgundy moment. I don't think you're actually supposed to read the speaking clues out loud, Joe. Believe it or not, it went downhill from there on out. Take a look. And that has changed, excuse me, and all that's changed is this court, end of quote. Fastest way to restore Roe, Roe, 10 years old. And she was forced to have to travel out of the state to Indiana to seek to terminate the presidency and maybe save her life. When tens of millions of women vote this year, they won't be alone. Millions and millions of men will be taking up the fight alongside them to restore the right to choose. Consider the challenge accepted, court. Right now, in all 50 states in the District of Columbia. Uh, it's actually terminate a pregnancy, not terminate a presidency, although think about it. It's not a bad idea. Joining us with more on Biden's executive order on abortion, Utah Senator Mike Lee. Senator, thanks for being with us. I've read it. Yeah, so Mike Lee is all for bringing in more H-1B-1 immigrants to take jobs away from Americans and drive down American wages. So he's a real cuck on immigration. I'm not a big fan of Mike Lee. Now, does that mean there can't be a coup for other reasons? It's of course Zion. And Russia is famous for being politically unstable, particularly at the top. Politically, specifically, the more ossified things become, as they are quite right now, it's very vulnerable to any sort of disruption. There's only one person, however, in Putin's inner or outer circles who might have the means and the guts. His name is Igor Sechin. He was a gunrunner during the Soviet days, and he, um, he fears very little. But if there's one thing that everyone else in the Russian elite agrees upon is that uh, Igor Sechin is a bit of a prick. And so if he did stab Putin in the back with a knife, uh, Sechin himself would probably be cut into pieces within 24 hours. So I don't think that is the coup uh, scenario that most people are hopeful of in the West. Yeah, even if there's a coup, it doesn't mean that Russia is going to be any less uh, committed to the war against Ukraine and possibly going into the Baltics or even Poland. Right, here's a little bit more from Nick Fuentes tonight. Debate, or you can use a super chat. We put those at the top of the list. And with that, thank you for our guests. We're going to kick it into open conversation. The floor is all yours. All right. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, let me, let me jump in here. So, um, yeah, so I guess I would start with um, what uh, Doobie said about how uh, girls are filling up these uh, spaces where they weren't allowed in and now men just can't compete. I mean, that might be true, except for the fact that the standards are having to be lowered in order to accommodate quotas for women. And you see this uh, in the military, you see this in the police in particular, it's the best example, where they have to lower the physical fitness standards to allow women to get in. Um, and you see this in a lot of major companies, 
they have quotas for how many women they have to hire. How many women, for example, uh, some of the major stock indices like the NASDAQ, S&P 500, they have set quotas for how many women need to be on the board of directors of the major companies. So it's not a question of competition. It's, a, it's as though it's something happening naturally. In a state of nature, men are stronger than women. And so if it was ever a competition, men would just beat the shit out of women. But that's not allowed. And if it was a, a battle of competence, well, men would also win that competition. So that's why they have to lower the standards. That's why they have to have quotas. That's why they have to have HR and you know bureaucratic society change the rules. Um, so that that's and that also answers the Hunter Avalon point that none of this is happening with intent, that it, it can't be a war because there's no intent. Well, what do you call all these policies that are trying to socially engineer the society for more so-called female representation? That's intent. That's uh, that's the lack of competition, which you said that there is. Um, so right there. I mean, that's completely debunked. Yeah, can I, can I respond to that? Yeah. Okay, so let's go back to this New York Times article about this brave young man who went fearlessly into a Chicago bathhouse and had multiple sexual encounters. And then the system didn't immediately rush vaccines to him. They didn't immediately rush vaccines to his roommate. They didn't immediately rush vaccines to his very committed partner, right? Just because he's having anonymous gay sex with lots of randos in bathhouses around America doesn't mean that he's not strongly committed to his partner. And it's so sad that our public health system is its just not up to the task. I mean, what's wrong? Why are these longstanding weaknesses in our public health system giving this virus a chance to become entrenched? Well, maybe it's because a lot of people are engaging in really destructive and, frankly, immoral and unhealthy and dangerous and antisocial behavior. So New York Times, second paragraph, experts say... The response in the United States to monkeypox has been sluggish and timid. Ah, so you want a strong response. So if I was the dictator of the United States and wanted to give a strong response to a dangerous disease that was spreading primarily through participation in gay orgies, I would say, hey, guys who like to participate in gay orgies, back off on the gay orgies till we get the situation under control. In fact, I would call... I know this is controversial, and this is probably going to get me banned from social media. In this kind of situation, I, I would call for a complete cessation on gay orgies until we figure out what the hell is going on. So tell me, tell me is that too edgy? Is that too much to ask? I mean, this, this would be a level of sacrifice akin to the people who stormed the beaches on Normandy, akin to the people who, who've served in all our wars, served and suffered and, and been shot and, and have been tortured and imprisoned and died, asking a few thousand American men to hold back from participating in, in gay orgies until we figure out what the hell is going on with this monkeypox. I know it's just, it, it, it's fascist to ask people for that kind of self-control. First cases of monkeypox were reported in May. So distressing. Tests were not readily available until this month. I mean, what the hell is going on here? We, we get all these diseases from anonymous, you know, gay orgies. And, and our public health system isn't immediately ready with tests and vaccines and you know, mental health counseling and everything else you need to take care of people who are willingly, knowingly choosing to participate in activity that is immoral, that is dangerous, 
that is antisocial, that is destructive of the body, that is destructive of the soul, that is destructive of the psyche? And, and why is our, our public health system not immediately ready with those vaccines, man? This is going to put a serious crimp in, in the, the party life of people who like to do meth and participate in, in gay orgies. I mean, it is incumbent upon us as the United States of America to make it as easy as possible to do meth and participate in gay orgies. Now, there are already 700 cases in the United States, and you're wondering who's to blame for that. Well, it's not guys doing meth and participating in gay orgies. Right? The problem is you. Right? The problem is our public health system. Like, If only we had socialized medicine, we could have a much better handle on this. So we've got an epidemiologist from UCLA. So why is it so hard for something that's even a known pathogen? Right? She warned of monkeypox outbreaks more than a decade ago. How many more times do we have to go through this? Yes, let us not ask any reduction in orgy and meth use by gay men. Like the problems, our public health system, the entire focus of the news media is what's wrong with our public health system. I don't know what's wrong with people engaging in dangerous, destructive, antisocial, anonymous orgies, right? What's wrong with those people who choose to engage in that bad behavior? That's my primary question, right? But yeah, I'm just some, you know, Orthodox Jewish religious fanatic who, who believes that uh, participating in anonymous gay orgies and doing lots of meth is not really a good way to go. Man, what, what a bigot I am. But you know what? Another problem is it's increasing travel and trade. It's all the free trade, right? So new pathogens emerge more frequently. And We've been hitting the snooze button, guys, on emerging diseases for decades. Now the alarm is going off. It's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. But no, don't don't ask anything from sacred protected groups whom you're not allowed to criticize. And most gays do not participate in random gay orgies. All right. This is a tiny percentage of the, the male homosexual population that does this. But don't dare ask of this sacred protected group that you're not allowed to criticize. Don't dare ask them to dial back on the meth and the random anonymous gay orgies. All right, the alarm's going off, but don't ask anything from people participating in antisocial behavior. The problem is our public health system. The obstacles to preparedness, guys, are systemic. And where are these obstacles? Are they within certain pathological parts of the gay community? Heck no. Heck no. Problem's not in the people who do math and have gay orgies. The problem is systemic at every level of government, rather than because of any one individual or agency, right? Men who participate in gay orgies, they don't have any agency, guys. They're just fated to do it. It's just how they like to blow off steam, right? So don't, don't ask what you can do for America. Ask what the public health system can do to you to rush vaccines and very expensive you know, medical experts and medicines to all those who you are very likely to infect, all right? You, you go to anonymous, you go to bathhouses, you have multiple sexual encounters, then you bring it home and you start spreading the joy, start spreading the pox, right? And, and, you, and you're thinking, oh man, why can't our public health system get this monkey pox off my back, man? What's wrong with our system, right? Did you know the public health system in the United States remains a hamstrung patchwork? It's an underfunded bureaucracy. It's seemingly incapable of swift and forceful action. You know who is capable of swift and forceful action? Those thousands of great Americans who love to participate in gay orgies and do meth.
right? We should be looking to them. They are our exemplars. I mean, talk about people willing to engage in swift and forceful action. I mean, you can say many things about gay orgies, all right? But one thing you can't say is that it lacks people willing to undergo swift and forceful action. This, this whole situation, guys, it, it doesn't reveal failures in you know, tiny segments of the homosexual male population in America. No, this reveals a failure in you. This reveals a failure in your soul that you're not supporting socialized medicine. It's a failure in our country to take public health seriously. Oh, so it's not a failure in people who are engaging in destructive, socially damaging, unhealthy, bad for the soul, bad for the psyche behavior right? It, it, it's not them, right, failing to take public health or their own lives or the well-being of their friends and, and families and communities and their country. It's not them, right, failing to take public health seriously. The problem is you, man. You take, you don't take public health seriously. Well, this doctor says, do we ever run out of fighter jets? Yeah, that's obviously the problem, guys. We're just spending too much money on fighter jets, not enough money rushing medicines and doctors to people who want to participate in gay orgies and then spread the monkeypox wherever they go. State and county health departments often set their own rules and priorities, sometimes at odds with federal guidance. Oh, no. There are county-level health departments that sometimes set their own rules and priorities. We can't have that. Everybody must be singing from the same hymn book. So it's not that certain groups engage in a lot of dangerous, risky, antisocial, unhealthy, horrible behavior like doing meth and participating in gay orgies, right? It's not a problem that we have certain groups who say commit disproportionate amounts of murder, right? Young black men commit an astronomical amount of murder, right? Most black people don't right? It's not most minority groups. There's a tiny subsection of young black men who commit an enormous amount of murder. And at least they're willing to take quick and decisive action, right? That's one thing you got to say for our murderers and for our spreaders of monkeypox. They're willing to take quick, penetrating action, right? Now, the problem is not that these protected saintly groups set their own rules, that they set their own priorities, right? No, the problem is with our ossified public health system, right? The house is on fire and it's like everyone is moving at sort of normal speed. Well, you know who's not moving at normal speed? You just haven't been to enough gay bathhouses, right? When they really get into it, guys, they're not moving at sort of normal speed. They are aggressive. They are assertive, right? They see something they want and they go for it. And we should learn from that. I mean, let us pray that we all take on the assertiveness and the aggression and, and the the stick to and the decisiveness and the ambition and and the willingness to to be you know emotionally open and, and physically open we can all learn from from gay bathhouses the global monkeypox toll has surpassed 8100 cases mostly men who have sex with men and the worst thing about this is that this could lead to the stigmatization of, of gay sex uh, i mean do we really need to stigmatize uh, gay orgies? I mean, think think of how much these people have already suffered. It just it breaks my heart. Right? 
Let us not ask anything of protected minority groups. Let us only ask from the white majority. Let us only ask from, from Christians, right? Let us only ask from productive members of society. Let us not ask anything from destructive members of society. But his competency, uh, we'll leave that for another time. Congressman Woman Bobert, thank you so much for being with us. Tonight, in the wake of the U.S. Supreme Court's decision on abortion, Justice Brett Kavanaugh continues to be stalked and harassed by deranged far-left agitators. Keep in mind, just a few weeks ago, a lunatic traveled all the way from California to Kavanaugh's own neighborhood in Maryland with plans to assassinate him. And on Wednesday, the Supreme Court justice was forced to flee from a restaurant through a rear door after a mob of liberals showed up to interrupt his meal. But according to the White House press secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre, this is what democracy looks like. Watch. Peaceful protest. Uh, people should be allowed to be, to be able to do that. In a restaurant. If it's outside of a restaurant, if it's peaceful, for sure. Really? Peaceful protest. You were, your first question so to me just, was so, intimidation. So these justices, because protesters do not agree with an opinion that they signed on to, have no right to privacy, is what you're but saying. But Peter, this is, this is, people have the right to, this is what a democracy is. People, people have, have right the right. To privacy? Of course, people have a right to privacy, but people also have a right uh, to be able to protest peacefully. Is that peacefully, safe? it's the intimidation and the violence that we condemn. Well, the restaurant where Kavanaugh was dining had a slightly different take on this. Morton's Steakhouse condemned the angry mob, calling them unruly, selfish, and devoid of decency. Joining us now with reaction. The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences, Harvard Law Professor Alan Dershowitz, along with Fox News legal, uh, Fox News contributor Charlie Hurt. Professor, um, on the left today, they were absolutely cackling at Kavanaugh being forced to flee a restaurant. Their rage, their glee was palpable. That's pretty stunning incivility. And I'm reminded of how you were treated at one point in time uh, when you dared to defend Donald Trump during the second impeachment. I'm still treated that way on Martha's Vineyard. People threaten to walk out of events or, or dinners if I'm invited, even though it was uh, years ago. Uh, the way Justice Kavanaugh was treated was absolutely absolutely disgraceful. Whether or not there is a right to protest, remember that protest can be restricted by time, manner, and location. And it might be constitutional to pass a statute saying that protests that interfere with people's basic rights, like the right to eat uh, of justices, might be unconstitutional. But look, I'm uh, I, I oppose the reversal of Roe versus Wade. I think, by the way, what Congresswoman Boebert said, calling people on my side of the issue the, quote, genocide squad, and saying that we are prepared for babies already born to be killed, is even more disgraceful than anything that happened to uh, to uh, the justice. And I, I just want to condemn those remarks in the strongest terms. I support a woman's right to choose. 
Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Let's check out next one. So this idea that like women are going to be miserable or what Hake said a minute ago, women just shouldn't be inventing stuff, bruh. Um, I mean, uh, really? Okay, but well, the, the point of what day, I was saying is that wait, wait a minute. Stardust, excuse me. Women are depressed because they're all going to hell. Okay, hell. The dirty <laughs> right. little fact is that hell is filled to the brim with women. My dude, women um, are depressed because yeah. they exist in the same world as you. So can we get back to the workplace? And that's whether they're in the home. Yeah, well, well I just want to say this before before we kick it over to Styles. I'll say one other thing. The reason I brought up inventions is this. Whether it's a military combat or it's innovation or it's uh, the big companies and the stock indices, the point is that the sort of elevation of women is artificial. It is deliberate. It's intentional. That, that was the claim is that, um, you know, the displacement of men by women in some places is just a natural evolution of society. And I said, whether you look at military or you look at the boardroom, you've got quotas, you've got standards being lowered. It's social engineering. It's This is not laissez-faire. This is not just something that's happening as a consequence of competition. This is by design. And it's being, and clearly, you know, it's, standards it's are being lowered simple, and quotas though. are being raised up. You know, that's clearly intent. And it's but something it's, that is negative towards men and positive towards women. So, I mean, that, 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 lacks, was the point was that lacks nuance. So, like, for example, you're right that there are some cringy companies that actually do have quotas for, like, we must have this many women. We must have this many black people. And that's fucking crazy. Come on, man. You can't, you can't uh, lack uh, nuance. Here's uh, Tucker okay. Carlson. That's, what, that's what's so fascinating. You see Chicago is like, oh, f you know, 300 mass shootings, but only two dead. <laughs> you know, whatever, you know, stuff. like, oh, okay, I'm, now I get it. It's like, They're not known for precision. No, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> anyways, this is so, uh, this begins here. And this, you know, so, so obviously Tucker Carlson is, he's a white, he's a dangerous white supremacist and he pushed all the, uh, dangerous, uh, you know, white replacement uh, theories and stuff like that, right? So, the, so he's going to be nailed here uh, by Ben Smith, who now works. He, I guess, he quit. He was in with New York Times for a while, then he quit that too, and now he is with uh, uh, Sem Semaphore. Okay, great name, buddy. All right, Semaphore, and uh, he's talking with him. I thought we could just play a little bit of that and listen to some of the arguments here because it's uh, quite fascinating. Let's go, New York, uh, Ben. Good luck. Thank you, Steve. Tucker, wow. Nice closet. Um, ben and, Smith, and, ladies and gentlemen. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you agreed to join us. Ben Smith, um, wow. Cool name. Someone just texted me and said you were pretty tough with Taylor Lorenz, which I was heartened to hear, but it's easy to hurt her feelings. So I hope you'll check I'm, your I'm privilege. Just, I'm just hoping you'll, you'll let me ask questions and not steamroll me because you're, you're a professional and I'm not. Um, you're the tough one, Ben. Uh, uh, but but I have been watching your show a lot, and 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 you you spend a lot of time laughing about labels that are thrown at you, racist, white supremacist, the most uh, host of the most racist show yeah, in the I'm history laughing of now too, buddy. cable television. Actually, I'd rather not ask you about the labels, but sort of give you an opportunity to talk about what you believe. What he's going to ask about the labels. Um, <laughs> and, and to begin with, you know, do you believe white people are superior to other races? <laughs> 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 no, I didn't see Ooh, that one coming me. at all. Ben Smith totally floored me. Ooh, <laughs> mind blown a, here with man, your expertise. That's a tough question, Ben. Good for you. <laughs> <clears throat> all right, so let's see. Let's see Tucker just cock and bend over and run right for, uh, like, to try to prove how not racist. Let's just laugh. Just laugh at his face. Well, it's the best thing. He, look, he do, he, do, he does do part of that, but then he doesn't like. Uh, and he doesn't have to say, yeah, we should pre we should rule everybody, but like, uh, uh, you know, like. 
fuck you. Like, you don't, get, you yeah. don't set the tone. What are you talking yeah. about? Like, morality? Okay, well, who do you think is superior then, huh? Is anybody superior? Let's look, Let's go down the list of, uh, let's say, mm, I don't know, inventions? How about, uh, I don't know, ex- exploration? Well, you know, <laughs> listen to what he says here, though. Of course not. And the funny thing is, that's you know, let, one let, of those, let me, let I me, think let there me, are a lot of... I let me just stop on the yes-no question there and just to, to put it a little differently before you respond, which Wait, is... No, no actually, do you think if I that, just answer your question... That, White people have I, more I of a claim on America. Superior in any way. The, let me. Do you think? See, that I'm back to that again, right? Do you think white people have more of a claim in America? Well, if you go according to the founding fathers, yes. I'll go back to the natural. Yes, yes, yes I do. Ben. Yes, I do. It's. It, you can. You can be honest and say yes, but they perverted that. They changed that into something that it is not. Right. But if you go back to the early documents, yes, this is actually what they said. Right. They wanted to have free white persons of good character. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. A- any other nation have built that nation just for them and their people. They didn't build it for some universalist pipe dream of like an impossible multicultural state, which now we can see coming to view, right? Full, the full thing is coming out. It's going great. Isn't it going great, folks? Are you enjoying it out there? You enjoying the ride? Huh? No, go ahead. You want to say something? <laughs> yes, Ben. Next question. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> but yeah. Why not, Bryce? Uh, yes, debunk me, bitch. Do you think that no, white I'm, people I'm have a, some claim on America that people of other races? Of course not. I mean, first of all, I'm a Christian, so I think God made everybody, and therefore everyone has equal value in his eyes. Mm, <sighs> yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. All right. Let, let's just, all right. We'll just play. I'm t- try to, I'll try to pause less. That's, let's go. The essential value of every person is the same. But the idea that I have... Can we just go back to MLK conservatism? Can we just go back to that? We're we're happy with, like, stage one communism. Can we we do that, please? It was so great then. They're trying to divide... Anyway, you get that. ...or some sort of deep racial animus is like... I mean, I, I think there are a lot of criticisms you could level at me. I think sometimes I overstate the case. I get pissed. I can be very nasty. You've been on the receiving end of that. I know you can vouch for that. But the idea that I'm a, you know, that I, I mean, if, if you were to look at my texts or listen to my personal conversations or read my mind, you would find no instance where I'm like, I'm mad at black people. 100% of the people that I'm mad you at. don't need to explain. He's going too far. well-educated white liberals. In my mind, have you seen have you seen some of the most like heated debates that Okay, I can't take uh, red eyes here. I'd like to actually watch the Tucker Carlson uh, Ben Smith discussion. I'll have to find that link, but I really could do without the the red eyes commentary. Just don't feel like I'm I'm getting anything from it. It's uh, quite low IQ. So, let's go back to this fascinating article in the New York Times. And uh, how we can never ask anything of protected groups, right? We can't even ask that they dial back on the meth use and the anonymous sex and the orgies, right? The problem is that we're not rushing the medicines and the doctors to them quickly enough and to everyone that they have infected or they might infect. So, right, the global monkeypox toll has surpassed 8,100 cases, mostly men who have sex with men. And about as many potential cases are under investigation. Why? Why? Because many of those patients cannot identify the source of their infections, right? They don't know who they've been buggering. And therefore, we've got a disease raging out of control. But no, we can't ask people to dial back the promiscuous sex 
We can't even ask people to stop going to orgies. We can't even ask people, hey, if you do go to an orgy, like maybe don't do meth, right? Why don't we have people saying, hey, stop doing meth and stop going to orgies and stop having sex with strangers? Now, New York Times says the first missteps in the U.S. response to monkeypox were in testing. No, I would say the first missteps in the U.S. response to monkeypox were in not making a stronger ask of people to desist from dangerous, destructive behavior, right? If you've got a small group, it's not gay men, it's a tiny percentage of gay men who are engaging in horrible behavior, why don't we ask them to cut it out? Why don't we charge them with crimes? Like, why not make it a crime to participate in orgies during this particularly dangerous time? I'm not saying we should do that. That's just a question off the top of my head. So we've got a network of 70 public health labs set up by the CDC to identify monkeypox. Great. We clearly identified this as a major mistake that allowed COVID to get its footprint in the U.S. and spread undetected for a, for a month. Now we're just doing the same thing all over again because that's the way it's done. Yeah, the whole problem with the spread of monkeypox is the CDC, all right? They're not rushing those test kits out quickly enough. They're, they're not producing the vaccine fast enough so that people can have irresponsible, anonymous gay sex orgies with meth, right, and and not have to face negative consequences. Well, guess what? There are very negative consequences to participating in anonymous sex. There are very negative consequences to participating in gay anonymous sex. There are negative consequences to participating in heterosexual anonymous sex. There are negative consequences to using meth, to combining all these things, right? Really bad for you, for your soul, for your body, for your mind, for your psyche. Now, the CDC should have made testing rapidly available, right? That's the problem. No, it's the people who are engaged in this horrible behavior. They are the problem. Two blisters and a rash on my butt is not the worst I've had in my life. Yeah, there's a pretty big toll to participating in anonymous sex. Like if, if you can go have multiple sexual encounters at a bathhouse and all you get are two blisters and a, ra a rush, rash on your butt, I mean, you've gotten off light. But the media keeps telling us the biggest problem with, with monkeypox is that it might lead to stigmatizing the LGBTQ community. Well, the lesbian community is not bringing us monkeypox, right? There's only a tiny subsection of male homosexuals who like to participate in gay orgies and do drugs. They are bringing us monkeypox. It's not the LGBTQ community. It's, it's, it's like saying... Uh, the Jews are engaged in insider trading. Well, maybe 0.001% of Jews have engaged in significant insider trading. It's not the Jews. Monkeypox presents as a body-wide rash, but in the current outbreak, most patients have only developed a few pox, primarily in the genital area. My fellow Americans, we need to check our genital areas to see if we have the pox. Funding for, for clinics, sexual health clinics, has dropped by 40% since 2003. That's the problem we, why we've got monkeypox, guys. We're not funding sexual health clinics. And, and it's because of this decline in funding that one in five Americans has a sexually transmitted infection in 2018. Now, I'd say the primary reason that we have so many Americans with STDs is not because of a decline in funding of sexual health clinics, 
we have a vast underclass that engages in a whole range of socially destructive, personally destructive, horrible behavior, including irresponsible sex. Men, women, gays, straights. All right? I've never had an STD in my life because I lived my life rigorously by the Torah's moral code. And when I didn't live my life rigorously by the Torah's moral code, I kept things wrapped. I was, I was an upstanding American. If monkeypox can't be contained, it may become a permanent threat, especially among men who have sex with men. Oh, God, that would just be horrible. The fear is that this will become as entrenched as an STI, like syphilis. Well, there are a whole bunch of horrible diseases you get from having anonymous sex. There are a whole bunch of horrible diseases, mental, physical, social, psychic, in your soul, from engaging in anonymous sex. Right? There are all sorts of horrible physical diseases that homosexuals, male homosexuals, who engage in a lot of uh, random hookups and anonymous sex are vulnerable to. It's not just monkeypox. Right? Having anonymous sex predisposes you to a lot of really bad outcomes. But the experts tell us without a lot of high-quality sexual health services, we're never going to be able to control it because you won't identify people fast enough. Well, how about you stigmatize engaging in this behavior and even the people who engage in it not just the behavior maybe even the socially destructive horrible people who are transmitting this horrible disease maybe we stigmatize them that's not stigmatizing gays because 99.9 percent of gays are not engaging in orgies with meth so it's not a matter of primarily of high quality sexual health services so the national coalition of std directors did you even know there was a national coalition of STD directors? If people simply say sex for marriage, I don't think we'd need a national coalition of STD directors, but they want, guess what? They want more money. They want more power. They want more prestige, like every profession. They want to increase their income, increase their status, increase their power, right? And uh, they want a federal coordinated plan. Because right now, states and cities are largely on their own. No, individuals are largely on their own when they go out there engaging in this reckless, horrible behavior. But public health in the United States generally is woefully underfunded and understaffed. Well, I would say moral health in this country is you know, woefully underfunded and understaffed. Maybe we need general direction that strongly discourages people from... In participating in anonymous sex, particularly participating in gay sex orgies with a lot of drugs, a lot of meth, right? Maybe, maybe that's bad and we should discourage it. I want to thank all of you out there for participating and buying tickets. It's very important to support guided culture. I want to argue that nationalists in the West should support Ukraine against Russia in the current war, but I need to define support. I want to make a distinction between moral support and material support. The case for moral support is simple. I'm a nationalist. That means I, suppose, I support a world of different sovereign states. A sovereign state does not answer to another state. That's what makes it sovereign. A sovereign state gets to choose its own friends and enemies. Specifically, I'm an ethno-nationalist, meaning that I think the best kind of sovereign states are ethnically homogeneous homelands, the homelands of a particular people. I support the rights of distinct peoples to their own sovereign homelands if they feel that this is the, way, uh, the best way that they can preserve themselves and flourish in this world. Diversity even uh, the diversity uh, that exists between two very culturally and racially similar peoples like the Ukrainians and the Russians, when it has to live under the same government in the same social system, causes conflict. We hear, for instance, that Russians in Ukraine, there are ethnic Russians in Ukraine, there are also Ukrainians who speak Russian, 
as a first language. We hear that Russians in Ukraine feel oppressed by the fact that the Ukrainian government requires everybody who lives in Ukraine to learn Ukrainian in school because Ukrainian is the government of the majority population, the founding population of the state, and it's the government, uh, it's the language of government. Uh, there are Russian speakers in Ukraine. There are Hungarian speakers in Ukraine. I'm told that there are Greek and Bulgarian speakers in, in Ukraine. Uh, we're told that the Russians feel oppressed by this because that's what happens when you have people with different ethnicities, different cultures, having to live together under the same system. Uh, of course, if multiculturalism is oppressive uh, for Russians under Ukrainian rule, it's also going to be oppressive for Ukrainians under Russian rule. The ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine is therefore a bad thing. Uh, it's bad because Ukraine is a sovereign nation that's being overrun. And it's also bad because Ukrainians are a distinct people who are better off ruling themselves than being ruled over by Russians. But, but what about those minorities in Ukraine? What about the Greeks? What about the Hungarians? What about the Russians? What about the Bulgarians? Uh, if these people feel oppressed because of the requirement to learn the dominant language, uh, should, we, should we be concerned about that? First, we have to point out that they're not being forbidden to use their mother tongue. They're simply uh, not being given parity with the dominant language of the country. They're required, in effect, to be bilingual if they want to deal with the government. The language of government is to be Ukrainian. In the 19th century, the Russian czar, Tsar Alexander III, did ban the Ukrainian language in Ukraine when, when Russia ruled over Ukraine. Uh, that is one of the reasons why so many Ukrainians today speak Russian as a first language. It's similar to the process by which the Irish and the Welsh and the Scottish uh, became primarily English speakers. It was the language of the dominant group, and it forced their indigenous languages to the margins. The Ukrainians are trying to restore the centrality of their language and culture in their state. Now, if Ukrainian minorities find this intolerable, they, do, they can take solace in the fact that right across the border are lands where their language is the official language. Hungary for the Hungarians, Russia for the Russians, Bulgaria for Bulgarians, and so forth. Ukrainian minorities all have homelands they can move to if they feel terribly alienated in Ukraine. But Ukrainians have only one homeland, Ukraine, and because of the Russian invasion, they're in danger of losing their independence. So the, the situation of the Ukrainian majority is far more dire than the situation of minorities in Ukraine, minorities that we hear about. Well, we, we hear a lot about the Russian minority in this case. Now, if different peoples have the right to their own homelands and sovereign nations don't have to answer to other countries, then Russia's invasion is clearly immoral. It's immoral because it violates Ukrainian sovereignty, and it's immoral because it deprives the Ukrainian people of self-rule in their own homeland. Now, Russia's rationale for this is fourfold, basically. The first and foremost rationale, the real rationale, is that Putin doesn't want Ukraine to join NATO. They don't want NATO on their border. But since sovereign nations have the right to choose their friends and their enemies, Putin's invasion to abrogate that right is simply wrong. It crosses a moral line. Now, cynics and realists like to say that bullying small nations is just what big nations do. That's what great powers do. And it's just not prudent to stop them because they're big and they might hurt us. But political realism also recognizes that small nations band together to protect themselves from big nations, which is why Ukraine wanted into NATO. Ukraine's uh, Russia's invasion is not an argument against getting into NATO. It's an argument against not getting into NATO, an argument against failing to get into NATO, because this invasion wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have been prudent for Putin to attack a NATO country if Ukraine had actually gotten in. Now, there are three other kind of throwaway rationales that Putin has given. Uh, one is that uh, Ukraine is oppressing Russians in the East. Another is that Ukraine is full of Nazis and we need to denazify the world. And the third is that Ukraine is a fake country. Well, requiring Russian Ukrainians to learn Ukrainian in school is not oppression. Uh, Ukraine has been fighting a Russian-backed insurgency in the East since 2014. Russia demands that Ukraine recognize its breakaway client states in Donetsk and Luhansk are being rejected by the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians think that giving up this territory would not bring them peace. Uh, so why do it, basically? I think that's their, 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 deep, uh, their deepest reason is that uh, if they could get peace by giving up territory, maybe, but they'd know that it'll just lead to Russia having uh, borders closer to Kiev and then new demands being tendered. 
they think this is the case because Russia took uh, over Crimea in 2014. Now they're trying to take over Donetsk and Luhansk in, in 2022. Another reason that this doesn't fly uh, is that uh, it's not necessarily an ethnic battle when you get on the ground in the Donbass, because there are many, not only Russian-speaking Ukrainians, but ethnically Russian Ukrainians who don't want to be ruled from Moscow, and they're taking up arms to fight this. Uh, so I, I think that uh, this is probably the, the place where the Ukrainians have the most room to negotiate. I think losing this territory wouldn't be a bad thing in the end if it could bring peace, but they don't believe it'll bring peace. And that's the reason why they, they reject this out of hand. The other charges that Ukraine is a fake country full of Nazis, uh, those are more ominous. They're more ominous because I believe they're implicitly genocidal. If you say that Ukrainians don't really exist as a nation, uh, you're basically saying that uh, their national self-consciousness is false consciousness. Uh, and false consciousness is the kind of thing that can be educated out of you. You can be re-educated. Uh, that should be extremely ominous. Uh, when the uh, when Putin says that their purpose is to denazify Ukraine, uh, this isn't just a reference to the Azov Battalion. It's not boob bait for old Russians who think the Second World War is still happening. It's not Putin trolling the Western media. Russians have a history of declaring their enemies, indeed entire peoples, as being reactionary, fascist, Nazi, etc., and basically as therefore targets for destruction, targets for re-education, for assimilation into something else, if not worse. Uh, at the very least, it's, again, an, a, a, a declaration of the intent of what you can call cultural genocide. Uh, Putin is using Nazi in the same way that Jewish organizations and the Jewish press in America use Nazi to refer to the nationalism Material of any breach group that they of multiple provisions of that agreement and appears to have made false and misleading representations upon which Mr. Musk relied when he entered into the merger agreement. Well, in response, Twitter's board chairman, Brett Taylor, said the company... So there's a question in the chat if I'm surprised that Elon Musk is reneging. I don't really know much about Elon Musk. One little thing I know is that he's incredibly hard to predict. Then one quick thought on Boris Johnson. It's like what happened to Boris Johnson kind of split the difference between my prediction and Kevin Michael Grace's prediction. I thought that uh, Boris Johnson, if he got Brexit done, would go down as a historic and significant prime minister, which is what happened. But Kevin Michael Grace was also right that uh, Boris Johnson self-destructed his way out. But let's get a little bit more here. Well, get you're probably wondering, what does Eric... Uh, Eric Swalwell say about these heard things. From, the evidence is uncontradicted that the president used taxpayer dollars to ask the Ukrainians to help him cheat an election. And the complaint that I've heard from the Yes, very powerful. Fucking kites. They get ruled by people like me. Little fucking oxaroons. I fucking, my ancestors fucking enslaved those pieces of fucking shit. I rule the fucking world. Those fucking kites. They get ruled by people like me. Little fucking oxaroons. I fucking, my ancestors fucking enslaved those pieces of fucking shit. I rule the fucking world. Okay, let's get a little bit more on what's going on with the law we'll pursue Twitter. legal action. What a surprise. And that the Twitter board is committed to closing the transaction on the price and terms agreed upon with Mr. Musk. Here now for a reaction, Congressman and North Carolina Senate candidate Ted Budd, along with New York Post columnist Carol Markowitz. Good to see you both. Congressman, uh, since you have the MBA, uh, let me start with you. The only people who are happy tonight are the lawyers. Right? As we speak, they're, they're, they're buying Porsches uh, because they know this litigation is going to finance their lavish lifestyle for years to come. But doesn't it all come down to fraud? Uh, were there intentional misrepresentations and false statements that led to a material breach of the contract? What say you? 
Well, Greg, this is a $44 billion deal with a billion-dollar breakup fee. Uh, if uh, there's a, not material reason, but Elon Musk thinks that there is. Uh, he's finding out that Twitter, no surprise to us that are conservatives, is just not being transparent about their business practices. This is one of the reasons that I'm running for U.S. Senate. It's one of the reasons that we have to hold big tech accountable. It's one of the reasons we have to take a good look at CDA Section 230, or the Communications Decency Act of Section 230. I've got a, a plan for this. It's something I've been working on for years, and I, I'd like to do that in the U.S. Senate. My plan's up on tedbud.com. Yeah, I mean, listen, I totally agree with you. Uh, giving liability protection... Um, is insane. Maybe it made sense at one point in time, a couple of decades ago, at the outset of the Internet. But, uh, uh, Carol, let me go to you on this. You, you know, I liken it to buying a car. Um, if the seller knows it's a lemon with a history of problems but claims it's a wonderful car and never had an issue, then the buyer is being defrauded here. And anybody who has ever used Twitter or pays attention to it knows that 5% fake accounts and spam and bots is ludicrous. It's way more than that. What do you think? <laughs> Way more. Yeah, absolutely. I'm an avid Twitter user. There's no doubt about it. That, that number is far higher. You know, a few months ago, uh, some leftist activists tried to buy a pillow company to compete with MyPillow, the conservative, you know, pillow company. And it completely failed. Their whole thing fell apart. And, you know, a lot of people on Twitter got to laugh at them. I think the idea of Elon Musk buying Twitter is not at all like that. This is a man who knows what he's doing. This is not like he had a shot in the dark, decided to buy some random company and didn't think it through at all. So I think the fact that he's pulling back from this deal right now says that he knows something that can, you know, potentially lead to uh, maybe a, a negotiating a better price or something like yeah. that, that maybe he'll still buy the app. I wouldn't be surprised um, if that does happen. And, but if it doesn't, I wouldn't be surprised if Elon is next to get banned. You know, hot gulag summer for conservatives. <laughs> okay, here's a little bit from a black podcaster talking about Richard Spencer. This is the Keep It P podcast where we take news, situations, everyday occurrences, and indeed we show how one could have and could not have been keeping the P. And listen, I'm not trying to tell you what to think. I'm trying to show you how to think. That's the exact reason why I bust down the articles the way I do cuz. That's why I do it like that, cuz. You do bust them down, though. I bust them down, cuz. On everything, cuz. On everything, cuz. That's how I do it. We're we gonna powerful, bust down this powerful. white supremacist. <laughs> Richard Spencer now calls himself a moderate, aka a Democrat. Went from the, the white supreme so what he just he, he quit being a white supremacist? No, he's doing white supremacy like now. So he's gonna be a Democrat. <laughs> we told y'all it's the same bird. So now he's doing diet racism now. But it's the same bird. We don't care if you're Democrat or Republican, P. We're talking about reparations. And that's y'all y'all been dedicated to parties for too long, P. Won't you be dedicated to the code? There you go. That's, but I know somebody there's a new really concept. How about that? You want to try that? <laughs> right. You know somebody else who's dedicated? He's nuts. Not just that. <laughs> Dang. What, what? You going to do her like that, P? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, Kendra. Go ahead. Kendra, you see her messing up your segue, girl? No, 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 no. I even do that. It's Blackwood. <laughs> okay, I can't take any more of that. Ukraine, that means basically destroying Ukrainian nationalism, which is equivalent to destroying Ukrainian national consciousness. Again, you might wipe the Ukrainians out in their own minds as a prelude to basically assimilating them into uh, a larger Russian, Russian society. Uh, it's genocide by the definition of the United Nations, and genocide is a bad thing. So as far as I'm concerned, the right is on the side of the Ukrainians, and we should therefore give them our moral support. Nationalists in the West should give moral support to the Ukrainians. What about material support as well? Yes, I believe that we should give material support to the Ukrainians, but with significant qualifications. Individual nationalists should offer whatever support they can. European nations are offering humanitarian and military aid as well. That is appropriate. Economic sanctions, those are also appropriate. But let's be careful here. The United States followed the path of military aid and economic sanctions into two world wars. With nuclear weapons, it would be the last world war. We can't afford a third one. 
Thus, nationalists should offer material support for Ukrainians. We should support material support, but we should stop well ahead of any widening of the war, especially involving the United States and NATO, because that's dangerous to the whole world. So in sum, nationalists should give unqualified moral support for Ukraine as a victim of military aggression and, and as a target of cultural genocide. And we should offer material support that stops short of a wider war. Thanks. Excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to give the floor to Dr. Jones first. I just want to thank one person that I forgot to thank in the beginning, and that is Gaddius Maximus. Gaddius Maximus sent a generous donation uh, on Entropy, and he said that here, is a, here, are, here is a couple of sponsored tickets for folks that you can invite in chat today. And so if you find yourself in the audience and oh, you haven't bought a ticket, uh, you can thank Gaddius Maximus uh, and his generosity. So thank you so much for that. Uh, Dr. Thanks, Jones, Gaddius. I'll leave the floor to you and give you a chance to give an opening statement. Thank you. Thank you. One of the most puzzling features of the current war in the Ukraine is the alliance between Jews and Nazis, which makes up the base of its current government. When Catholic neocon pundit George Weigel was confronted with this fact, he dismissed it as a conspiracy theory. Before long, however, the same mainstream media, which could no longer deny reality, decided to spin what they could no longer, no longer deny instead. And so we read in the Washington Post that uh, would-be militants have been recruited by groups like the Azov Battalion, a far-right nationalist Ukrainian military and political movement. Azov was absorbed into the Ukrainian National Guard in 2014, has been a basis for Putin's false claim that Ukraine's government is run by neo-Nazis. Well, wait a minute. There's, there's a little bit of confusion here. They were absorbed. We know they were Nazis. They were absorbed into the government's military forces. So why is that a false claim? Why is that a false claim? Things get really confusing a little later on because Western white supremacists and neo-Nazis, for the most part, this is from the Washington Post, do not support the current Ukrainian government, and not simply because of its ban on anti-Semitism, President Vladimir Zelensky's Jewish heritage or other specific matters. Ukraine is a developing democracy, which far-right extremists oppose as contrary to the fascist governments they want to see. As the administrator of a popular German and English neo-Nazi chat group wrote, while urging members to join Azov, I am not defending Ukraine, I am defending National Socialism. At this point, the Anti-Defamation League got involved, but only to muddy the waters even further. On March 4th, the Anti-Defamation League published an article by Andrew Skrulevich, uh, its director of European affairs, to minimize the Nazi problem in the Ukraine. The article was promoted in a March 15th email newsletter from ADL CEO Jonathan Greenblatt on, quote, how anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and other misinformation are spreading in the wake of the invasion. Okay, so it's an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Oh, wait a minute. In order to uh, downplay the present-day cult of Bandera and support for Nazism in the Ukraine, the ADL finds it necessary to re rewrite some history. In effect, Holocaust revisionism. Skrulevich's article takes the form of Q&A with David Fishman, a professor of Jewish history at the Jewish Theological Seminary. Fishman is also a member of the Academic Committee of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. We've seen, he says, torchlit marches in the middle of Kiev with the red and black flags of the UPA and pictures of Stefan Bandera, who allied with the Nazis during World War II. Isn't that evidence of Nazism in the Ukraine? To which Mr. Fishman says, for Ukrainian nationalists, UPA and Bandera are symbols of the Ukrainian fight for Ukrainian independence. The UPA allied with Nazi Germany against the Soviet Okay. I think uh, it's time to wrap things up for the week.
So let me finish off with a prayer. Whatever it is that you're seeking in that guy's butt, may you find it in God instead. Take care. Good Shabbos. God bless.